Listeners to this show never let me down. They send emails every day with suggestions for the next woman to feature. And the woman you are about to meet is one of them. Bert's email said, quote, I have a woman for you to profile, and there's so much to say about her, it's hard to fit it on one page, unquote. Well, ain't that the truth? Hi, this is Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. Have you heard of the Arnold Arboretum? For Bostonians, it is a treasure which is free to everyone to enjoy. Established in 1872, it encompasses 281 acres of land owned by Harvard University in an area of Boston called Jamaica Plain. The Arnold Arboretum is filled with 15,500 individual plants, and it is a benchmark for similar institutions all across the United States. And the woman you are about to meet works right there. She's the Director of Institutional Advancement, and she's been involved in fundraising for nonprofits throughout her very long and successful career. She's also a champion for women in horticulture and is the treasurer for the National MALS, M-A-L-S, Foundation. We're going to find out why she's connected to this disease in this interview. And in her spare time, she does research on women and education in the 19th century. Wow, what a story. Her name is Tanya Holton, and this is her story. Tanya, welcome to the show. Hello, Candy. Thank you for having me here. I am so delighted to be right here in your office, and you've promised me that we might have a little golf cart ride when we're done here, so I'm very excited about that. We are sitting here in your office at the Arboretum. What is it like, Tanya, to be surrounded by this beauty all over the place throughout the four seasons of the year every single day? It is pretty inspiring. It is. It's inspiring in many ways. I will say I'm looking out to my left and staring at this gorgeous magnolia out the window that's right in bloom. But the truth is that spring is not the only season at the Arboretum that's stunning. Every single season has its beauty here in the landscape because nature is beautiful no matter when you're experiencing it. And I just also have to add that my colleagues here have beauty in and of themselves. What they do to keep this landscape vibrant is really quite stunning. You are the Director of Institutional Advancement. So tell us, what is your mission? What is your call to action? What do you do? We are a nonprofit organization, and every nonprofit needs to have a way to support itself and to keep doing the good work that it does. And that is my role, is to help connect people who have a passion for this open public space in the heart of the city of Boston and connect them to how their philanthropy can help keep this place vibrant. You know, what's interesting about that is that this place has been here for so long that it's almost a part of the lifestyle. It's a part of the environment that we all live in. Mm. How do you keep it top of mind so that people know it's important to take care of it and to donate so that it continues to thrive? Mm, It's a great question. I suppose it's a lot like radio in that radio is on the air all the time and you can enjoy it you can have it as background but you don't necessarily think about the value that it has in your life until somebody reminds you or asks you to think about the value that it has in your life and the arboretum is very much the same way our gate is open to the public from sunrise to sunset every day of the year there is no fee we're very rare in that regard that we are a botanical garden that does not require you to pay to get in And so people walk through it every day. During the pandemic, we had over 3 million people who found solace in this landscape. And we just need to remind them that if they support us with their membership and their donations, it helps us do the work that we do. 
I spent a lot of time getting ready for this interview and learning all about the Arboretum. You're celebrating 150 years yes. as a centerpiece of beauty here in Boston. It's called America's Living Museum, and it's sitting on land that's owned by Harvard, but it's maintained by the city of Boston. Is there anything that you can tell us that's kind of special about this beautiful place from the inside out? <laughs> so many special aspects of this landscape. I think the first is that it is maintained by people who care deeply about what they're doing every day. Nearly 100 professionals here who take care of the horticulture. 10% of all of our species in the landscape are extinct in the wild. So there is a special level of knowledge. We're not simply talking about landscaping. We're truly talking about understanding the museum quality objects that grow here and how to make sure that they thrive and that they're not lost to the world. You know, it's something to point out that Olmsted, when he was designing this historic landscape, understood that to get people to focus on the science behind each specimen and each species that's here, he needed to pull people in with the eye candy. And he's done that beautifully. We have a rhododendron collection, which is just, again, eye-popping. And it helps all of us. We get joy just by looking at it, and then we learn a little bit of the science as well. I can only imagine tens of thousands of people crowd through our landscape to get a, not only a glimpse of the lilacs, but also to smell that wonderful fragrance. Oh, there's nothing else like it, is there? <laughs> it's very true. And it's important to remember that that is a, sort of a hallmark collection here, but there are 280 other acres in this landscape that are worthy of celebration. The nonprofit space has really been the focus of your career. You've worked for many nonprofits and charitable organizations ranging from higher education to Braille literacy to healthcare and everything in between. What is it about this work that makes your heart skip a beat, that continues to inspire you? Well, I love the notion of making the world a better place. It's as simple as that. And there's no greater group that does that in the world than our nonprofit organizations. And frankly, America is really a, a beacon in the space of nonprofit work because we understand as Americans that it takes all of us to roll up our sleeves and help each other. And it's beautiful to be a part of that. You had a health crisis that caused you to press pause mm -hmm. on this great big career of yours. Yes. Can you tell us about it? Yes, I can. Thank you. You know, people always have said, if you have your health, you have everything. And I don't think we understand that until we have a moment when we no longer have our health in that same way. And that's what happened to me. I was fit as a fiddle, never went to the doctor at all for decades, and then all of a sudden could not function in the way that I was accustomed to functioning. And it was extremely difficult to start having symptoms that forced me to stop and to take note. And the biggest challenge was that we could not figure out what was wrong. And I live here in Boston, which has you know, some of the leading healthcare institutions in the world, and no one could figure out what was going on with me. And there is nothing more discouraging to be a patient in healthcare when there are no answers. In some respects, what was interesting is that uh, once we had an initial diagnosis, it was a rare disease. I had doctors say to me, I've read about this in the books in medical school, but I've never met anyone. And that was also humbling as well. So the name of the disease is MALS, and I know you're very involved in the MALS Foundation, but let's talk to our listeners a little bit about once you got that diagnosis, it was based on what kind of symptoms for you? Yes, it was in a sense enforced anorexia. It was not a mental condition, it was very much a physical condition where I could not eat 
without having pain. So what do you do? If you have pain every single time you eat, what's the natural thing you do? You stop eating because you're trying to function, you're trying to keep going in the world. I was working full time. I lost 40 pounds. I'm already a skinny person. Yeah, you guys will see in the pictures, this woman cannot afford to lose 40 pounds. Because every time I ate, it caused debilitating pain, nausea, panic attacks, because you don't understand what's going on with your body and you're, you're panicked. So it was extremely hard to continue with work, but I had to. I kept going from doctor to doctor. I was blessed to have an extraordinary primary care physician. And she stuck with me at every step, kept sending me for tests. And finally, I was diagnosed at, a, at an emergency room. And still, even then, I was sent to experts in Boston. Because this is such a rare disease, even in Boston, there was not the experience of dealing with this condition. It is called MALS. What that stands for is Median Arcuate Ligament Syndrome. And that is where your median arcuate ligament, which is part of your diaphragm, compresses your celiac artery. So what's fascinating about this is that you have digestive symptoms because you can't eat, but it is not a GI issue. So you're sent to GI specialists who then don't really know what's going on because it's not a GI issue. And I was told by a number of different specialists that it was all in my head. How many women out there sadly have been told that their medical issues are in their head? And I had to keep fighting to get an answer. In fact, most MALS patients are female. Tell me what happened once you got your diagnosis. Is there a cure for MALS? Is this a chronic disease? How do you live with this? It's a little bit of both. It is a condition that can come back again, but the only solution for median arcuate ligament syndrome is surgery. And the surgery involves cutting back the ligament so that it no longer compresses the celiac artery. It's, it sounds simple, it is a major procedure, But once the artery is no longer compressed, symptoms tend to go away. There are people for whom, even once the artery is no longer compressed by the ligament, the blood flow is not restored and there continues to be symptoms and then further intervention is needed. So that's why sometimes it is considered a chronic. Every day I wake up, I say, I have no symptoms. Today is a good day. You are also the treasurer of the Mouse Foundation. I'm guessing that that was something that you really did from the heart. Tell us all about this organization, its mission, and what your role is there. It's an extraordinary group of women at the moment who are all on the board of the Mouse Foundation. Um, I was honored to be asked to be a part of it by a woman who founded the, the foundation in the first place, and five of us came together to create it back in 2018. Imagine this is an illness that affects people all over the world, and yet there had never been a foundation created to shine a light on the condition and to help patients who were in extreme distress. So that's been really meaningful to me. I took a look at the website. It's robust and it explains everything and it walks people through symptoms. The name of the website is malsfoundation.org, mals, M-A-L-S, foundation.org. Our childhood, the values we learn from our parents define us. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing, where you're from, paint us a picture of what life was like in your house. I grew up in various places in the United States. Uh, My father was in academia. And really, the hallmark of my growing up was being told that I could do anything that I wanted to do. My father was first generation to go to college. And he and his own parents believed that education was the key to success. Um, My grandfather, who really is my most profound role model, Grandpa Mickey, only had a high school degree, was never able to go to college 
became that American success story of um, working his way up to a senior level executive position, supporting a family of five children and sending all of his children to college. And I am the beneficiary of that. Golden rule. Was there one in your house? What were the values like that your parents taught you growing up? Brothers and sisters, by the way? Older brother, younger sister, well-adjusted middle child. I was just about to say middle child. Okay. (laughs) What were the values like in your house? It was definitely a value of helping others and of looking outside oneself to see what else there was out there in the world that one could do. So service. Did you know what you wanted to do with your life from an early age? Did you have a sense that it would be around service? At the very beginning, I actually thought that it would be in academia. My father had been in academia. I was an academic nerd. Of course, as a teenager, one's never quite comfortable with being a nerd. (laughs) But now in middle age, I embrace it. Always loved learning. I always put in that extra bit of study, etc. I was not an athlete. Everybody loves to remind me because I have two daughters who are varsity athletes in college. So I always thought that I would pursue the academic, the ivory tower. And it became very clear to me that I wanted to do something broader than that in terms of having an effect on the next generation in the world around me. Where did you go to college and what was your major? What was that time in your life like? I started at Stanford University focusing on history and then actually decided that I wanted to have an even deeper dive. So I actually went to England and studied at the University of Cambridge in England and loved it there so much I decided to stay. So I took my degree from England. Wow. Talk to us a little bit about that time in your life. It was an extraordinary experience. Absolutely. I felt blessed to be overseas. And I was fascinated by the issue that for me, it was an easy decision. I talked to my parents and they said, of course, go wherever you want, pursue anything you want in the world. And I realized that not every woman has that opportunity and is given that chance. And as an historian, as someone who is passionate about history, I wanted to find out what would it have been like for women like me, but in an earlier time? And how would they have been able to pursue their own academic dreams? And that's how I came to the dissertation that I wrote, um, which ended up becoming my master's dissertation on American women who studied overseas and studied in England before World War I. Fascinating. Mm. Tell me a little bit about this love that you have. Obviously, you've talked about history, but you've got a real passion to talk about women in the 19th century and education. So let's dive into that just a little bit. Give Mm. us a sense of what that was like. Take us all on a journey. There were many girls who were not allowed to pursue an education. And for those who were, it was typically in what we now would call an academy or a seminary. And they had female seminaries, they had male seminaries and academies, and then they had a handful of co-educational seminaries and academies. So nothing like the public school system that we think of now. Very often they were boarding situations because transportation in the 19th century was so complicated. Imagine being in rural Vermont and wanting to go to school and having to travel across the mountain to get to school. So many young women boarded and the academies advertised boarding and and whatnot. But they were taught subjects that were as broad as what we're taught today. In fact, they were taught subjects that were even deeper. So they would have studied the classics and science and mathematics if they were lucky enough. Again, I need to emphasize that if a young woman was lucky enough to be able to get an education and also music and art. Typically, once a young girl or woman was married, that was the end of their education. Interesting that you should say that, because I'm wondering, even if a woman received a more advanced education, how would she use it? Who would 
hire her? Where would she work? Mm -hmm. There were many families who were asking those very questions. If there was a young woman, a child in their family who just was burning to, to receive an education, very often the parents would say no because they didn't understand where it would lead if the goal at that time was marriage. Over time, more and more people started to understand that an educated woman who became a wife and a mother would then have educated children. But that took some time for that evolution. And even then, it was thought that study would actually damage the uterus and would not allow women to have healthy children. I so wish we had all a of video these controversies. camera for the look on my face right now. <laughs> Countless number of controversies, lots of articles and books written on the pros and cons of educating women. In the end, I decided to study women who had already gone through their secondary education. They had received the blessing of their parents to go to college, which again was a major endeavor. In the western part of the country, the land-grant colleges were mostly co-educational, and first co-educational institution was in the Midwest. On the East Coast, there were women's colleges that were founded specifically for women, but the idea of co-education was not approved. So that's where this notion of the seven sister colleges, which many people have heard of, came about because it was the first seven colleges for women in the East Coast. Well, speaking about women who were highly educated, there were four of them who were profiled as part of the early history of the Arboretum. And yes. these were women way back in the day who played a central role in the horticulture and in the development early on of the Arnold Arboretum. They were. And they were encouraged by Frederick Law Olmsted, who was ahead of his time in understanding the value that women could bring to the field of horticulture. So absolutely at the cutting edge, both in terms of their own research and their own knowledge, but also in the support that they received from their male colleagues. How did motherhood change you? You mentioned your two daughters that are in college. You've got a big smile on your face. How did it change you when you became a mom? Well, I will confess that when I became a mother, it was really, really difficult to juggle full-time work and parenthood. I love my daughters with all my heart, but I'm constantly telling them now as they're adult women, 21 and 25, that I feel badly that I had to juggle so many things and that I wasn't always as present and available for them as I wish I had been, that I was oftentimes anxious and stressed because of the juggling act that we often have to do in our society. Having said that, they've turned out to be beautiful <laughs> women despite my own failings, and a large part of that is because we were blessed to have my husband who was home with them. And so they had an extraordinary role model in their own father, who was the one who was spending the, the majority of time with them growing up. Next three questions we ask everyone who sits where you are. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I don't. I go right through it. I've learned in my life, and I'm an introvert, I have to confess, and it's easy for me to think as an introvert that maybe if I just hide my head in the sand or if I don't have to deal with that, that it will go away. And what I've learned in my many decades of life is it doesn't go away, it gets worse. And that it is much better to confront it head on in the most gracious way one can, which I'm not always very good at, but I try and be as direct as possible. I'm also a firm believer that when you make a mistake, you need to say sorry for it. And so if I make a mistake when I plow right through the middle of an obstacle, I apologize that maybe I should have handled it a little differently and that I know that things could be better. 
What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? This can be personal or professional, and can you pass that along to our listeners today? Yes. The best piece of advice I received was from my grandpa, Mickey, and it was that every day you wake up is a gift. Every day is another chance to make the world a more beautiful place. And that is the mantra I try to live by. Before we get to our final question, I have one more for you. What do you wish you knew when you first got started as a woman working full time? I wish I'd known how to say no. Popular answer. (laughs) I got to tell you. It is something that I am not good at. My husband always kindly tries to remind me that I need to improve that skill. I try to do too much because I want to make the world a more beautiful place. I have a hard time saying no to people. Final question. At this moment and in this chapter of your life, what does success mean to you? Success really does mean making life around me more beautiful to myself, to other people. Sometimes it can be as simple as a smile to someone while you're standing in line. Sometimes it can be grander than that. But whatever that gesture is on that day to create a beautiful moment, that is success. Tanya Holton, I want to say thank you so much for having me to your beautiful office and for being our guest this week on The Story Behind Her Success. Thank you. I'm honored. And that's The Story Behind Her Success for this week. My thanks to Tanya Holton for sharing her inspiring story with us. The Arnold Arboretum is celebrating 150 years of plants and people. It's a treasure to Boston, so head on over for a dose of springtime beauty. You'll find their calendar of events at arboretum.harvard.edu. I'm always on the lookout for the next woman to profile, so if you have someone in mind, could you please let me know? Just go to my website candyoterry.com. That's candy with a Y, O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. Give the show a follow on your favorite podcast platform. And please tell your friends and family about the show. Leave a review if you would be so kind. I will have a new inspiring story for you next week. When we share our stories, no matter where we are in this great big world, we provide a roadmap for each other, and it leads Toward success. What's your story? I can't wait to hear it. <laughs>